Welcome to a very special episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. Welcome. So today I am more than averagely excited, Dr. G, and it's not because I'm back on caffeine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why are you so excited? It is because we get to not only talk about one of my favorite subjects ever, Agrippina the Younger, but we get to do it with someone who is a huge expert in the field, Dr. Emma Southern from the History is Sexy podcast and author of a recent biography on Agrippina. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Hi. It's so, so good to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the show. We thought we might start off doing a very, very brief uh, context of Agrippina, and then we're going to start asking you some questions. So, Dr. G, Agrippina. Agrippina. Is why is oh. she the younger? Why is she the younger? <laughs> well, her mother is the elder. Um, so, Romans, yeah, traditionally like to call all of their female children by the same name. Um, so, you know, um, you have the mother, the elder, you have her daughter, the younger, there are other daughters, um, not all of them survive. Um, but Agrippina the younger is kind of infamous, um, mostly I think salaciously for perhaps the way that she dies, um, which is, um, she's at a party, um, with her son Nero when he's emperor and she goes home on a boat and he's tried to turn it into a collapsible vessel to drown her. And that doesn't succeed because it turns out she's a powerful swimmer. Um, so Mumsy does not die. And so then he has to finish her off some other way with some henchmen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, that's the kind of, they're the sort of moments of Agrippina the Younger where I'm like, you know what? You know, I want to know more about this woman. Yeah, way to start at the end. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, so she lives She lives between about 15 to 59 CE. Uh, and she's part of this family called the Julio-Claudians, who are the first imperial dynasty to rule over Rome. These people are related to Julius Caesar and Augustus, who some people might classify as like the first emperor-type person. Uh, and Agrippina the Younger it has the good fortune to be blood related to him, like directly descended from him, which is pretty... That's pretty important. Pretty important, yeah. Because yeah. he's a pretty awesome guy in people's opinion at the time, well, not mine. Yeah, and I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if Emma could step in here and yeah. explain just why it's so important that uh, Agrippina, the youngest bloodlines. Um, because Julius Caesar claimed descent from Venus... Um, and therefore claimed a kind of divine blood. And then Augustus and Julius Caesar were both made into um, kind of living gods. Uh, so they both also were kind of divine and there were cults to them and temples to them. So by having that blood and being a direct descendant from them, she was kind of semi-divine in a way um, or claimed a kind of semi-divinity because people literally sacrificed and worshipped to her granddad um, and her great-granddad, which is quite cool. Definitely. Not a bad place to be at all. It's so not. you've been studying, you've obviously done intensive study of her for your book. Uh, how would you describe Agrippina the Younger? Agrippina is, a, at the core, just a fighter. Like, she never gives up and... She faces all of these moments in her life when I think a normal person might just go, you know what, I'm rich, I've got a kid, um, I could just retire off and live a happy life of like giving to charity and having nice lunches and buying pretty dresses. And 
she has these moments of amazing luck where where at me i would just be like mm, i'm just gonna I'm just going to retire now. Like I've lived my exciting life, but she never gives up. She's always, always fighting, even up to the last moment of her life. Like when you say that um, she was eventually killed off by Nero, like it took him several attempts and eventually he had to stab her. And she even fought at the like final moments of her life. She never stopped fighting to be present in public life, to have a voice of her own. um, And, I think that probably made her quite scary to be around. Um, I think that there's a picture going around yesterday that somebody has made all of these um, famous figures from history and has kind of turned them into modern, like what they might look like if they were alive today. Mm. Um, And the picture of Agrippina looks like she is um, on the verge of releasing a a guitar-based cover of a 1980s pop song. (laughs) Um, and she has this kind of wavy hair and this soft lips and um, I feel a bit like she might look more like she was about to kind of cut your face if you said a bad <laughs> word <laughs> yeah I feel like you know Wall Street lawyer like really really highly yeah. paid my imagination of her in terms of her energy is basically Margaret Thatcher um, <laughs> like quite buttoned up quite severe um, you wouldn't ne- wouldn't want to kind of crack a joke necessarily like very serious um and would absolutely cut you (laughs) she's taking in everything and she knows where you live oh no (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and if you're her friend then she'll be great to you but if you are not then she will hurt you nice okay well that gives us a pretty good uh, overview of uh, her personality Uh, so i'm curious to know what you think are like the big turning points in her life i mean what is she fighting for for all the all these years you know and one of the big moments where she's faced with these opportunities to show how feisty she is so what she's fighting for is the julian side of the family basically Mm. so um the julio claudians are two families the julians um coming from julius caesar and the um claudians who are in an equally ancient family and they come together in augustus when he marries livia and livia is a claudian um and the julians are the divine side of the family and the claaudians are just old um <laughs> we've actually already met them in our podcast that's very how old severe they are patricians yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um so when uh, augustus has all of these t- like woes with regards to his succession and ends up being Tiberius who is the next emperor who um, is a Claudian he is Olivia's um, child from her first marriage and the Julians are kind of sidelined because there's no men left on that side essentially Mm. Um, and what Agrippina is fighting for is what her mother was fighting for which is to have the Julian side of the family be back at the top um, to have a a Julian next emperor um, regardless of how she does that and what she wants what Agrippina the elder wanted was her sons to be emperor which she got eventually yeah. <laughs> um, after she died and what Agrippina wants is, uh, is her son to be emperor so the big turning points for Agrippina the younger are there's this point where her mother and both of her brothers are um, exiled and then executed by Tiberius Mm. which is a very severe low point for her but then a few years later she is surprised when her brother Caligula um, is made emperor um, and she is kind of pulled back up to the top then she plots against Caligula 
and is found out very early into the plot and is exiled off. She's tried and exiled off to a tiny island where she lives for a year. I'm interested in the extent to which you think that story about that moment is verifiable. Like, was she plotting against her brother? Is that likely to you or... Yeah, I think she was. Yeah. Um, so, like, there is a great deal of um, controversy about it. Some um, historians think that it is invented by Cl- by Caligula for some reason. Some think that it is perhaps overblown. I think she probably was because there are a lot of. One, um, she is tried. She has a trial um, in front of the Senate where they read her letters out. Two, she there are a lot of people who go down with her basically. So mm. there's two brothers who are leading the um, troops in Upper and Lower Germany, um, and they both are removed and exiled. And a bunch of politicians go with them as well. Mm. Um, and I so I do think that when you look at how close Caligula was to his sisters, and then how it's not just them that go down. There are a bunch of other people that I think that she probably was involved in some kind of plot. Well, the plot was, couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> well, her brother was pretty unpleasant by that stage, wasn't he? <laughs> he was pretty unpleasant. He had, he was um, not that much fun. And he had also just had a child. Mm. Um, and prior to that, prior to the birth of his daughter, Nero was the only member of the next generation. So then it becomes kind of a, a dynastic issue that didn't exist previously yeah. as soon as... Um, Caligula has a daughter but I do think that she was plotting something interesting okay so she goes off into exile and it's starting to look pretty bleak for her in exile Caligula does yeah sending her threats and that sort of thing and I, I I must admit I personally believe that if he'd lived much longer she probably would have gone the same way as her mother but miraculously yes. <laughs> miraculously it turns out she wasn't the only person who wanted to get rid of her brother exactly yeah. um and he got um, administered some stab wounds in a corridor. Um, <laughs> and then her uncle, back to the Claudian side of the family, Claudius becomes emperor. Um, and this is like the moment of massive luck, really, that it's him and that he immediately undoes what his um, nephew had done and brings everybody back from exile. So she gets to return to Rome. And this is the moment where I probably would have been like, and kind of she, uh, for a bit, she does like, cool, I'm home, I've got my kid again. She marries this guy called Passianus, who is famous for two quips and pretending to be in love with a tree, (laughs) (laughs) which is why, (laughs) and everybody thinks that this is hilarious that he like is always pretending to be in love with this specific tree and he gives it kisses and pours wine on its roots and <laughs> it's no wonder Agrippina becomes murderous in her older age <laughs> <laughs> there's a great there's suspicion from much much later that she murdered this husband and to be honest like if that's the kind of thing that he was doing all the time then you can't blame her that much <laughs> <laughs> I know my students are always very disappointed that the Romans have a, a relatively poor sense of humour <laughs> They have a terrible sense of humour. I agree with them. They're so unfunny. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of like, they're unintentionally funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's mostly because they put penises on everything. Exactly. <laughs> um, but their they're like kind of attempts at jokes are very poor. But um, so she, she comes back, she gets married again. She has this kind of low-key life. And then all of a sudden, Passianus dies 
Messalina, who is Claudius's wife, is executed and then she marries her uncle. Um, and then the next year is made into the first proper living Augusta and starts appearing beside her husband in in public and receiving delegations and putting her name on things and is suddenly a literal empress. Okay, hold up, hold up. <laughs> somewhere in there, somewhere in there, she married her uncle. She did. <laughs> this has got to be controversial. It's pretty controversial. Everyone thinks it's really squicky. Um, <laughs> but the way it's plays out in the sources is very, very funny. So in Tacitus, it kind of outlines it. And um, it's agreed kind of behind closed doors, obviously. Mm. Um, and he has this weird round table where all of the all of Claudius's freedmen kind of sit round and have a dialogue and put forward their candidate for wife. It's like a great ancient Roman reality show waiting, exactly. waiting to happen. Find <laughs> and my then everybody wife, yeah. votes on it. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Find my empress. Yeah. It's the bachelor for Claudius. Exactly. Yeah. Um and so but you know it was I highly doubt that it was that um organized but it's decided behind closed doors but then they get the consul um vitellius to propose it in the senate that they change the law to let claudius marry his niece because um she is the best possible woman and they are going to give her as a gift to claudius for being so brilliant um because she is both fertile and has the highest possible bloodline and um, is virtuous and wonderful. And so he gives this big speech outlining how this is a brilliant gift. And they, the Senate all goes, yay, what a brilliant idea. Let's change the law. And then they all rush outside where Claudius just happens to be hanging around, <laughs> um, as emperors do, just shopping. Um <laughs> and announce this amazing news to him and he's like oh gosh what what a surprise um <laughs> and it's all like it's like a play it's bizarre but um but yeah they change the law and everyone as soon as claudius is dead everyone's like oh gross but um, <laughs> you wouldn't want to say it was, while he was still alive <laughs> no he was a bit renowned for being quite stabby so they um they didn't say it while he was alive at the time they were like what a brilliant idea i can't believe we didn't think of this before the egyptians do it why shouldn't we um <laughs> it, the actual way that this may have come up is completely lost um and is shrouded in kind of tropes of ancient literature so um they have this round table discussion between the the freedmen and then you also have agrippina flirting with her uncle and sitting on his lap and kissing him which mm. is sounds unlikely frankly well as you said it's playing into the negative stereotypes about both of those groups isn't it in that yeah you know the the freedmen are often played up in the sources as having huge amounts of control over claudius because they're exactly the kind of people that should not have power over uh over anyone Greeks. but particularly yes. someone like claudius and agrippina um, is often portrayed in our sources as being um incredibly uh, ruthless when it comes to using sex as a weapon to get what she wants. And Claudius himself is positioned as maybe the not the best candidate to be emperor. He's kind of like a sideline <laughs> figure. Um, everyone's a little bit surprised that he manages to get in there at all. Mm. And they're all a bit quite concerned about his physicality, um, which for the Romans seems to relate directly to their understanding of morality. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and he stutters and stumbles and um, is a bit hunchy and trips over his own feet and also has limited control of his um, reactions, apparently. He likes to, when he laughs, he laughs very hard. Um, <laughs> I know how he which, feels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's this brilliant story of him when he's giving his first ever speech, like talking about one of the books that he wrote so basically like a book tour um and somebody comes in late and a very fat man comes in sits down on a bench and breaks it um <laughs> and he starts laughing every kind so everybody has a bit of a laugh and then picks him up and then gets on with it but he just won't stop laughing like 20 minutes later he's still laughing at the image of this man falling off a chair um and so he's considered to have limited control of his emotions, which people find like, you know, Romans are obsessed with control, especially for men, controlling yourself, controlling your body. Um, and so they find this to be morally very dubious indeed. Yeah, so it's a bit of a problem for him. And so when you think about this as a kind of a, a love match, um, <laughs> the idea of idea of this, uh, this man with his uncontrollable laugh and his uh, ability to trip over his own feet um, drinking and, problem. I, I think a drinking maybe a drinking problem. problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> being approached by his yeah. niece, who is a full-grown woman, has her own child, uh, a few marriages behind her now, cozying up to him. Uh, the, the image is just bizarre, and I wonder to what extent we're seeing uh, sort of an invective against um, Agrippina and and kind of women in general who are seeking out a sort of a position of power um, and the yeah. sort of the tactics that a woman has at their disposal in order to try and make that happen in the constrained circumstances of Roman society. I'm always slightly dubious of it. And I think that there is always um, less so these days, but there's kind of that trend to um, reclaim it as, as you say, the, like a woman using what she has. But it always still feels like super reductive, like that that is all she has, that um, she couldn't possibly have persuaded him with her words um, or her brilliant personality. Mm. Uh, like, all she has is tits and ass. <laughs> Heaven forfend that as relatives, they might have something in common and actually get along. <laughs> exactly. You know? Remember when and I was 20 educated... and you were a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember when literally I held you as your uncle, uh-huh. as I'm your dad's older brother. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've read enough uh, copies of Love It magazine to know that this does happen, but yeah. not generally with that kind of age gap. But I, uh, my feeling is that when you then look at what she does with the power that she gets, like she is very, she is very controlled um, and people find her super weird because she's not luxurious and slutty. Mm. Like she doesn't have 50 lovers is not killing people for their gardens, like Messalina, allegedly. Yeah, she does seem to have a real political plan and an agenda that she's operating for. Yeah, and she seems to really like politics. Like, the stuff that she does that they find icky is her, like, trying to get involved with the Senate and trying to have a say in how they deal with the Jerusalem problem. <laughs> like, she's the thing that seems to she seems to really enjoy and be very good at is diplomacy and negotiation and talking to people and making deals um which obviously tacitus in particular finds weird he keeps calling her masculine Mm. and like monstrously masculine because she does this and this isn't what women are supposed to do women are supposed to be messalina they're supposed to be 
sex crazed and only want jewelry and pretty dresses and she just doesn't and in fact when Nero eventually becomes emperor and he tries to placate her after they've had an argument he gives her a pretty dress she is like what the hell is this (laughs) (laughs) when have I ever suggested that I like pretty dresses like (laughs) when I like she always is dressed very kind not modestly but you know conservatively yeah exactly conservatively she's plain dressing um and she dresses for practicality rather than for prettiness except that one time when she wears a really gold cloak in order to show off which is cool yeah and that's 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 um that piece is obviously like a sort of military inspired like i always think of like the modern sort of military jackets that women can sometimes wear i always think of something like that that she'd be rocking out and it's so obviously to draw on as you say the kinds of things that she's interested in which is power you know um it's a statement piece (laughs) It's a real statement piece. It's a gold military cloak, and she turns up at this at the um, first attempt to drain the Fusine Lake, um, wearing it. And everybody, Pliny, uh, Pliny the Elder was there, and he writes about it. He's like, everyone was just amazed at this sparkling gold military cloak. But again, it's a masculine piece of clothing. Mm. She plays up on this um, this idea of of masculine power rather than feminine influence, which she has no real interest in. It's really, yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those things that's actually always really drawn me in with Tacitus's account in particular of Agrippina. The fact that he does keep, as you say, dwelling on the fact that she's got this real masculine sense to her power and the way that she operates. Do you do you ever feel, because Tacitus is notoriously negative about Agrippina the Younger, um, but do you ever feel like he does actually have a sort of grudging admiration for her? Because if she had been a man, she would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that Tastis is such a misogynist that he just can't see anything but her femaleness. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I think if she had been a man, he would have adored her in the way that he adores his, Agricola. Like, and he would have written glorifying biographies of her. But um, because she is a woman, he could only see her as the height of decadence and failure. Mm. Um, and like, his annals are constructed so that she sits there as the the great big bad like the monster that comes to ruin everything and it's it's literally just because she is a girl I think he's kind of obsessed with her in a way that he probably like like in the way that misogynists often do kind of fancies her Mm. (laughs) Um, yes (laughs) like it's a bit like you know pulling your hair in the playground because he fancies you like he just goes on about her so much um, he's like always thinking about Agrippina <laughs> he writes more about Agrippina than he ever does about his own wife in in a way this is the fact that Tacitus has to navigate this I think bespeaks highly to just how influential she manages to become within the constraints of what she faces so it's like she wants to be involved in politics and we can see the ways in which she is involved in politics like she does leave a mark and this means that he can't avoid it um (laughs) he can't and he obviously read her autobiography as well the one woman to write one um and he quotes a couple of lines from it And he is obviously kind of not impressed, but it leaves an impression on him, like Mm. a very strong impression. The the fact that she was able to write a memoir, which is written in the, um, we know it's written in the same style as like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Like the genre is that. Amazing. uh, (laughs) Yeah. So it is a genre which 
very exp- and you know how romans are obsessed with like all the genres have different meters and they use specific terms like so it is a a genre that is used to write about politics and war and only those two things and she writes about her own life and then the two extracts that we have from it one are about her mom crying uh, and the other one is in pliny and is um about her talking about how nero was a breech birth mm. um which are the two most intimate things that we know about Agrippina the Elder and the Younger. And so she is using this very masculine genre, this public genre of politics and war to write about female bodies and female lives um, and female feelings, which is like incredible to me. And And beyond gotcha that we don't have it. Yeah, yeah, it kind of blows your mind because it's like, we just want to have this document. It's got to be somewhere. It must, I know, like, and you know that when they're eventually going to pull out all the stuff from Herculaneum and it's all going to be just bloody platonic philosophy <laughs> <laughs> that we've already got. I, know, I keep, my, keep uh, my students going with the hope that maybe Agrippina's memoirs are in there. Um, but I, I, deep down, I know that they're probably not. <laughs> you know how, like, everybody has, like, one trashy romance novel somewhere hidden on their shelves, no matter how highbrow their shelves otherwise are. Um, maybe he just had one copy. <laughs> you got to hope. I mean, given the time period, like it's possible. It's definitely possible. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I think she does, and she obviously does leave this big impression on later Romans. Like she's not forgotten at any point. She is still, the the things that she does, so she's very close with one of um, Nero, uh, one of Nero's, not Claudius's, sorry, um, freedman and he gets lots of honors and those are still all over the city so she leaves her mark and then much much later trajan puts up a uh puts up a statue of her when he builds his forum so she obviously does leave this mark on roman culture and she is a less she's a very strong lesson to other roman leaders because no other woman gets close to her level of of power and public persona until you get way down to the Severans. Um, so she does have this this cultural influence that is is almost lost to us now. Mm, well, she's, I mean, she is so pivotal, I think, as you say, in Claudius's life. And it, them, their, their marriage it really unites those two branches of the family, you know, the Julians and the Claudians. Mm-hmm. And it, it does seem, I mean, as we mentioned before, Claudius had come to power in less than desirable circumstances. <laughs> um, you know, there's an assassination. He is basically forced into power because he gains the support of the Praetorians. Um, the Senate aren't thrilled with this. And so the first part of his reign is, you know, pretty rocky. There's there's conspiracies <laughs> and he has to uh, take action against those senators. Messaline is obviously, um, at, at least as far as she's recorded, um, that's a whole other story, a bit of a car crash. And um, yeah, so he has this really rocky start to his reign. But once Agrippina is on the scene with that very controlled approach, she seems to have for politics and also Um, I suppose just knowing that she does have those connections because by this stage, unfortunately, even though her mum had numerous children, she is the last one left standing by this point. She is. Yeah, nobody else has the connections that she has. Both her sisters are dead. All her brothers are dead. It's just her. Um, And so, yeah, she does seem to bring this real stability to Claudius's reign. And in exchange, she does seem to have this much more prominent role. Oh, yeah. But, you know, she makes some requests you know um, with, with, with <laughs> yeah. stability comes some uh you know maybe we could bump my son up ahead of your son yeah you well, that's just, it does it doesn't really take her long does it to get Nero you know on the it's on the like 18 months yeah, yeah. Uh, which 
she has him betrothed and uh, betrothed to Octavius. So she manages to persuade Claudius to have his own son kind of bumped down the list. Mm. So he stops being um, his primary heir. She persuades him to adopt Nero, so which is when he becomes Nero. And she also persuades him to have Claudia, his daughter, uh, Claudia, Octavia, sorry, um, adopted by another family so that she can be betrothed and then married to to Nero because otherwise it would be incest so again she basically relationship (laughs) yeah she persuades him to basically get rid of both of his biological children and put all of his energy into Nero um, by basically saying look Nero's older Nero is the only male direct descendant of Augustus Nero is where your energies need to be and this this is going to be the easiest succession and also I want it so (laughs) and I can just imagine her saying things like look we all like Britannicus but let's face it who's his mother Um, we can't have that can we you know what's that gonna lead to Exactly. He's fine, but he is only eight. And what do you, you know, whereas Nero is 14. Look at how good he looks in his tiny little uniform. <laughs> <laughs> he's about to put on the turgor of manhood. Exactly. And he's very popular as well. Like people love him. This is something that I constantly come back to because my, my, my bias, I suppose, my instinct is to always be massively impressed with everything Agrippina does because I just adore her. <laughs> but I do sort of wonder how much uh, Claudius really had a choice if he's being a savvy politician. Because with someone like Nero running around with his popularity, being older than Britannicus naturally, with an ambitious mother like Agrippina, with the blood connections and they, that they both have, I mean... Did Claudius really have a choice apart from to bring them into his family and promote them? Because if he hadn't, wouldn't it have been a big risk to leave them out there floating about for some other ambitious family to snap up? Absolutely. Um, And it's kind of hypothesized that this is what sets Messalina off. um, Mm. Because Agrippina, between coming back from exile, she gets married to Persianus. He goes off and is governor of Asia. Um, So she goes with him. And then she's kind of quiet for about four years. Like she is just chilling wherever she is, staying out of the way. But then they have these big games to celebrate uh, 110 years since Rome was founded, even though it's only been 67 years since the last one was held. Um, And so they have to show up as members of the royal family for that. And the crowd goes absolutely wild for them. Mm. Um, Like they really pity Agrippina as the last member of her family standing um, because every other single member of her family has been, apart from Drusilla, has been murdered by an emperor. (laughs) Um, And she... And they they have so much sympathy for her. They love her. She's the daughter of Germanicus, the great general. She is the sole remaining member of Augustus's family. Um, they love Nero, who is kind of just coming into his teenage years and is looks adorable. And so they go absolutely wild for her. And they do not go wild for Messalina and Britannicus. They're just like, yay. To be fair, they didn't know that Nero was going to get a chin beard in like 10 years' time. <laughs> they could never have known or that he was going to force them to listen to quite so many of his songs. No, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically, the big, I suppose the next big turning point is that, you know, after she gets all these honours and, you know, everything happens for her in Claudius's reign, we then have this big turning 
turning point in 54 when Claudius dies. And yes. the big question, of course, is <laughs> did she do it or did someone else? <laughs> See, I go back and forth on this all the time. Yeah. Um, but my general, where I still stand, what I said in the book and I still stand it, is that every single source, like every single one of them, including Pliny, who is contemporary, mm. um, says that she murdered him. There are no... Where, with every other emperor who dies, there is a, a kind of... A standard version of events was that he just mysteriously dropped dead and then a secret version, which is that he was poisoned. <laughs> um, whereas with this, the standard version of event is that he was poisoned and there's no secret version that he just happened to die of liver failure. Yeah. Um, he Like, every single one of them is like, oh, yeah, she killed him. So presumably she did that because there was some potential threat perhaps to Nero with Britannicus getting a bit older or Claudius yeah. just wising up a bit perhaps. He seems to be, yeah, so he's kind of hitting 14, 13 and is about to get his toga of manhood and the... Of Tacitus is writing in a, a very literary style, but he basically um, suggests that Nero is beginning to have a competitor in Britannicus, that um, Claudius is starting to look at Britannicus and say, oh, look at my son. Maybe my son could be a co-emperor. Um, <laughs> maybe my son could be like, could also have this nice thing that maybe he could be prefect of the city of Rome, which is what um, Nero is at like, 14 um which is ludicrous but um and Agrippina's like mm, no we had an agreement um I'm just gonna have to get rid of you so <laughs> she... <laughs> this has gotten awkward quickly my husband yes and obviously she can't talk him out of it um or has failed to talk him out of it or has decided that she just can't be asked to talk him out of it anymore he is getting on anyway like, <laughs> yeah um I feel like it has to be kind of desperation because Nero is clearly not ready mm. um but she and she miscalculates this one pretty badly but she does i think that she does do it i think she poisons him she gets some mushrooms a particularly succulent mushroom puts some kind of poison on it and has him dead within a couple of hours and then she does this spectacular job of stage managing um events in the um aftermath of claudius's death so that you know, she's sort of saying, oh, he's fine, he's fine. It's very weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Everything, he's all right, he's all right. Exactly. While, while she's getting Nero into place, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so everybody comes crowding outside because they hear the emperor is ill. Um, and that always sounds vaguely ridiculous. But then I remember how many people go out on Christmas Day in England to go and sit outside the church where the queen goes. And I figured that if the queen was ill, 100% people would go and stand outside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> um, so fair enough. Um, so she keeps having kind of having people announce to the crowd that he's ill, but he's all right. He's ill, but he's all right. He's ill, but he's all right. And then all of a sudden comes out and goes, he's dead. Here's your new emperor. <laughs> uh, um, and she is already got the Praetorian Guards and the Senate and everyone to agree that Nero is the new emperor so um, everybody's kind of like oh okay okay hi so yeah she does a pretty good job that bit is in Tacitus particularly um, written up in the identical style to the way that he describes how Livia deals Mm. with Augustus's death which is what makes it suspicious to a lot of people yeah but it's just like there is a trope there and Tacitus has never shied away from a trope. No, no, exactly. And so she manages to finally, finally achieve this lifelong goal to have her son <laughs> as emperor. And it seems like everything's going really well because even though Nero is just a teenager, um, 
he's you know he seems to be really grateful you know he gives the password to the guards as you know the best of mothers she appears on this coinage in a way that no woman has ever appeared before and no one ever thought was possible and that her titles are in the superior position it's all looking so good she's got her supporters with Seneca and Boris and she's also managed to infiltrate the whole Praetorian guard like sensing a narrative turn it's it's looking so good (laughs) and then within like two years it's all fallen spectacularly apart oh no yeah I, I always like to think of it as being like a typical it's like a typical teenage boy and mother situation that starts to unfold in that he starts pushing back against her level of control yeah. and involvement and she can't help but nag him and remind him of all the things that he owes her <laughs> yes and then you have as well seneca who um is She's rescued twice from exile once she stops him from being sent off. And then he got sent off for banging her sister and her sister was executed, but she managed to get Seneca brought back and then put in as his, as her son's tutor. Um, so she kind of thinks that Seneca is her ally, her friend, a good pal that they've known their whole lives. And then he does a spectacular heel turn and basically writes all these speeches for Nero in which he's, she, he's suddenly saying that the royal palace isn't going to have any input into politics anymore um, and is telling Nero that women can't have a say and that freedmen can't have a say in how the empire is run. And then there is this moment where um, the an Armenian delegation comes to Rome to ask for some help. And for the previous few years, Agrippina has been receiving delegations alongside Claudius and so she kind of expects that she will be receiving this delegation alongside Nero too because why wouldn't she uh, he's her son he's like 16 and so she turns up and steps up onto the days to take her seat to receive it and um, Seneca pushes Nero forwards and says get rid of her and Nero has this moment to decide between the two of them is he going to kind of say no Seneca sit back down this is my mother um or is he gonna say no mom you've got to get out of here and he chooses Seneca and he meet stands up meets his mother and gently guides her out of the room and he basically publicly humiliates her and that that's the moment where she knows and everybody knows that he has sided against her and has sided with traditional roles for women and is is not going to have her as part of his his governing team and then it all goes further downhill from there because he starts he falls in love with a freed woman which she finds to be disturbing um, <laughs> and they have massive arguments about that when Seneca is in the background saying oh hey if your mum's causing a problem you can use my house yeah um, <laughs> gross <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly um, such a heel turn and then they have all like he's not very nice to Octavia and um Agrippina really likes Octavia because she seems to be lovely and then they they're just constantly having fights over stuff and everything that Agrippina tries to do Nero gets in the way everything that Nero tries to do Agrippina saying don't do that they're just their relationship falls apart somewhat and this is when he gives her a pretty dress and she is like what yeah Um, (laughs) get out of here (laughs) and this is going to be an incredibly like challenging moment for her as well because unlike say claudius who you know she's managed off stage as a corpse you know you can't quite do the same thing with your own son and no she's found you're not in bed with him so (laughs) well aren't you if you're (laughs) 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 
Hey, we all saw the stains on his toga, right? <laughs> yeah. They, there are alleged, so that's the story that they had, they were incestuous. Um, either, so there's two versions of the story. One version is that um, as she is losing her grip on him, she she tries to seduce him. So she turns up and is like, look, oh, you're a teenage boy or you want a sex, why don't you shag me? Um, and <laughs> the other version of the story I know, <laughs> is that he was in love with her and he had a concubine who looked exactly like her that he used to show off and that he is always talking about how much he wants to bang his mum. And then there's a bit in Suetonius where they travel in a litter together and occasionally he would come out with stains on his toga of a suspicious origin. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Um. <laughs> the Romans really love accusing people of incest they at this do. time, though. They like, love this If anyone st- stands close to somebody who they're related to for more than 40 minutes, then they're accused of banging each other. <laughs> Chances are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He manages yeah. her off stage and into his bedroom. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting, actually, after this period, because after things have really fallen apart... As you pointed out, there's this lull where, I mean, as, as you say in your introduction for the book, we, we even though Agrippina is tremendously prominent as far as women go, we do really still only see her because of her connections to the powerful men. It's because she's mm-hmm. the sister, the wife, the mother of empresses that we get to see her so much. And now that she and Nero have fallen out, there's this couple of years where it's it's a bit unclear exactly what she's doing. And I love your suggestion in the book that this maybe is when she decides to write her memoirs <laughs> because yeah. she, had, she didn't have a, a, an awful lot else to do. But that makes the the murder of Agrippina all the more surprising in a way because it seems to almost come out of nowhere. It does. Like the way that all of a sudden Tastus is talking just about stuff going on in the Empire again like he does all the time and it's just kind of and this is a debate people had and this is a thing that happened and here over here there was a problem Um, and she just vanishes for five solid years and then just out of the blue Nero's decided to murder his mother Mm. which so she has to still be around and being a nuisance um, to Nero the a prevailing theory is that he wanted to get rid of her because he wanted to marry Poppea and his mother would never let him divorce Octavia which she wouldn't have to be fair yeah <laughs> it, that he never liked Octavia. Octavia is just, it seems to be a nice girl, like a perfectly nice girl. And he is not a nice boy. No. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that is a, a, a very popular theory. It's a popular theory at the time and it's still quite a popular theory. Um, but obviously, if she is not going to allow him to marry Octavia, then she's still very present in his life. She's still present in Rome. Here's the fact that he tries to several times to make it look like an accident because he doesn't want to lose her popularity. Mm. Um, he doesn't. What he wants is for her to die of quote unquote natural causes yeah. so that he can then be the mourning son of the beloved mother and he gets to have his cake and eat it. And also there is a suggestion that he asks Burris to... Um, just go and give her a quick stabbing. And Burr says, no member of the Praetorian Guard is going to kill the daughter of Germanicus. Um, just they are more likely to turn around and stab you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so she obviously has this, still has this presence in Rome, this popularity. She's still there. She's still, and the empire is, 
you know, this is speculation, but the empire for those few years is running pretty well. Like there's no great problems. Everybody's pretty happy. No one has tried to stab Nero and everyone seems to be pretty grand. And I feel like that's probably her mm-hmm. and not that Nero was particularly good between the ages of like 17 and 21. So I think that's her kind of chilling not doing the public stuff but behind closed doors is still you know meeting with senators and saying well all right well if we do this and da, 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 maybe if you put this person in this position then that would be a good idea um and rather than trying to do the public thing but she's obviously still there still mm. a powerful influence because otherwise he wouldn't bother to murder her he would just do what he wanted oh and there's no way that she's going to be like easily murdered either it's just it's just <laughs> not in keeping with anything to do with her character you know this is not somebody who's going to gently go into the night my favorite thing is that he tries to poison her um and then discovers that she takes an, um, antidotes every day i know so bizarre. <laughs> well, see, I, th- I think the thing that always stands out to me of course is like the famous death scene that we started with where um once he, you know the, the collapsible boat has failed to kill her and she's managed to make <laughs> yeah. it back to shore and make it back to where she's staying um and then he sends uh you know she sends the messenger to him saying don't worry i'm okay trying to play it cool like she doesn't know what's yeah. going on and in return he plants a sword on her messenger and claims that you know assassination i've got to kill her now um um, and that when the henchmen arrive at her house and she realizes, you know, finally there's nowhere left to run. She's played every card she has. Um, she does the whole strike here and points at her womb um, and, yes. and has this badass death, which is in such contrast to someone like Messalina, who was, you know, like, ouch, the sword, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she, um, like, uh, in Tacitone, they burst into her bedroom where she's sitting. She's kind of hurt her shoulder. She's just swum from a sinking boat. And she says she knows the guy who has come because he hates her. Mm. Uh, he's from the Navy. And he, he sa- she says, if you have come and to say that my son has told you to kill me then I don't believe you he wouldn't do that to me um so they hit her on the head and she falls over and then she gets back up again and says fine strike here and then points at her womb and then they kill her and you're just like such a badass death yeah (laughs) well in the aftermath yeah the aftermath is crazy as well like Nero is obviously really nervous about how this is all gonna go down how this is all gonna look yeah uh it just goes to show how much as you say how much of a presence she must just still have it's gonna look terrible yeah (laughs) Yeah. there's no getting around Uh, murdering your mum never looks good no no so that's a really great um, conversation we've had about Agrippina. I'm now I'm now curious to ask you a little bit about your process in writing this book because it's been a while since we've had a, a, a biography that's just on Agrippina. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like your process of um, you know picking Agrippina in the first place and then researching and writing this book? Well, uh, so much like in Australia, Agrippina is a um, topic, Agrippina and Nero is a topic for um, A-level ancient history here. Yeah. So I first learned about her there. And then she also came up when I was an undergraduate. And when you do kind of intro to Roman history, she, you get the Claudius and his women, Nero and his mother, they're like, you know, topics that are obvious to pull out for Roman history. Mm. And there's this 1990s biography of her which is very academic and has it's super useful um, but has all of these very dense lists of everywhere that Agrippina may have ever looked and every statue of her that ever existed yeah (laughs) and all like way back then I was always saying someone should really write a biography of her someone should really write a biography of her somebody will eventually write a biography of her that is a popular one and then 
kind of biographies of like four have been written about Livia and I kept waiting for it to happen and it still wasn't happening so I basically I moved to Belfast from England and I didn't really have a job and I was friend of a friend is an editor (laughs) and he was saying that he was looking for pictures so uh of a hundred words and so I thought you know what I've got nothing else going on somebody should write this and still nobody has written it and I wrote a hundred word pitch for it while I was sitting on the sofa on my phone and sent it off to Scott Pack and he got back to me and was like I really like this do you have a proposal and I said no I do not but (laughs) (laughs) but I can write one so I wrote a proposal um and a kind of outline in about a week and sent that off and he really liked it and then at that time he was working for Unbound so he was like do you want to publish it I was like yeah right um and that was about it it was about a week from beginning to end of deciding because I just kept waiting for somebody else to do it and nobody was so I thought well I suppose I'll have to do it (laughs) nice so how long did it take you to write the whole biography it took about a year to write it biographies are so all of my other research has been really massive projects that span about two centuries and um 40 million writers so this only having four sources <laughs> felt quite narrow yeah, and defined yeah. I was gonna say it sounds like a really manageable size yeah. <laughs> yeah and with biography you kind of have a fairly natural linear progression unless you want to write you know like a life told backwards or something like Mm. you start at the beginning you keep going through the end the toughest bit is writing the beginning where she is absent from you can't not tell the story of Agrippina the Elder and Germanicus Mm. um, and what happens to them and the you know the perceived murder of Germanicus and then the murder of Agrippina and what happens to her family Um, but she is not in that story at all she exists in one single sentence um in all of the sources so the challenge is telling that story without telling the the way a lot of other biographies go is they'll go oh so this is what uh, education was like for upper class roman women so this must have been what it was like for her I'm like well mm, mm, no, no one asked what that was <laughs> no that wasn't the question we were asking we we're asking about agrafina's life um so i didn't want to go down that route but and i wanted to tell that story of her childhood and her upbringing but she's not in it and so that's that was the hardest part but then beyond that you've got Tacitus is a great source like he tells such good stories Mm. um Dio tells great stories um and once you start digging into the epigraphy and the coinage which I love like she's got such good coinage um that are just so striking it's hard to make a coin sound dramatic (laughs) we know what you're talking about Um, your person visuals yeah (laughs) But the, you know, but they are quite dramatic. And so it was, I had a really good time writing it actually, because she has, she always felt so alive to me. um, And I just wanted to make her feel alive to everybody else. Mm, I think you definitely feel that when I, I think that's why my students respond so much to your biography. It's because you can really feel that you like, uh, you like talking about Agrippina, that you've enjoyed the project. Um, and, and, and it really does have a sense of liveliness that, as you say, like an academic text might not necessarily um, have. And, and that's really what history, you know, you want history to be about, particularly when you've got 
kids in high school you just want them to engage with the material you want them to feel that and this is kind of one of my main things is that you want to I think that when you're reading academic books or when you're looking at statues it's really hard particularly when you're young to believe in them as real people Mm. who like stubbed their toes and got up in the middle of the night to go to the loo and just and had physical bodies and feelings and so one of the things I really wanted was to make it clear that she and her family were no, real people as real and physical and full of emotions and feelings and making bad decisions as everybody else. Mm. So one of the, thing, the most interesting things about this particular book, which I hadn't come across before, is that, uh, as you mentioned, your publisher was Unbound. And the way I gather that this book came about is that it was published using a form of crowdfunding. Can you tell us a bit more about what that involved? Yeah, so as I say, this was kind of an accident, but Scott was working for Unbound at the time. So they are basically the publication of the book is funded by pre-sales. So whereas traditional publishing, they pay for all of the editing and production and distribution, and then they get that money back when the book is sold. Mm. Um, Unbound do it the reverse. So you basically, you sell the book before it is published (laughs) And then with that money, they pay for it to be edited and bound and sent out to people. And then in order to incentivize people buying a book that doesn't yet exist, there's also much like Kickstarter kind of a pledge level. So you can get extra cool stuff if you pledge a bit more. So if you pledged 80 quid or whatever it was you got, I got a friend of mine to paint a portrait of Agrippina. Um, who lives in Australia actually um, (laughs) which is (laughs) um, which is a beautiful portrait um, and you got a a print of that and if you pledged a certain amount then I sent people postcards um, with Roman facts on them Um, (laughs) and did I did a tour of the British Museum for people who pledged at the highest level so we went round and um, I know where every rude thing in the British (laughs) Museum Roman galleries is (laughs) And I did actually went and did a recce before I did the tour and found like two new ones. One of which is a lamp with a woman being fucked by a horse. Oh, Um, wow. (laughs) So I did a tour where I just showed people basically... Because you know, I don't know if you've been to the British Museum, but basically there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um, and it's not in particularly in a linear way. So you don't kind of follow through. You just kind of meander about. Um, it's very easy to miss the rude bits yeah. because they're yeah. all tucked in corners or very small or uh, kind of hidden behind. Like there's a, a, a freeze of a man who may be Antony shagging a woman who may be Cleopatra on a boat while a slave looks away, but is directly behind that very famous bronze bust of Augustus so everybody's looking at that and no one's looking at at the very (laughs) exactly so I did it so people who pledged at that level I did a personal tour of the British Museum and showed them all wow fantastic I mean this sounds like a really interesting way in which like academia is coming into contact with the public consciousness and it's almost as if this project has enabled you to build a bridge between that really strict form of academic writing and engagement in fun history, which is is what people are really, I think, all about. And it's like, it doesn't take much of a conversation getting to know somebody that you haven't met before they realize you're a historian and they tell you how much they loved history. <laughs> um, and, then, and then they assume that you know every fact about history. Uh, and you're like, oh God. <laughs> 
Then they ask you about Henry VIII or something. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, uh-oh, not my area. And, and yet this book has enabled you to kind of build that connection with the public reader and take it into a new direction, which I think is fantastic. It has. And I was really lucky with Unbound that they they give the author a lot of kind of creative input into things like the cover and the like the way that is marked. So I wrote the blurb on the back, which is rare. And the rather than having a marketing department do it, basically, because I think if a marketing department had done it, then it would have ended up with a bust of Agrippina on mm. the front and it would be in either purple, which is what all Roman <laughs> books are, um, or if it wasn't in purple, it would be in red. Um, those are the two options for book. <laughs> and or it would have been my least favorite thing, which is a bust with sunglasses <laughs> <laughs> and you sit like so many books have this or in graf- like the agrippina being graffiti writing because this is um how marketing departments roll but because i wanted it to be really bold and graphic and um kind of stand out in a way like that it would look completely different to everything on the shelf and so they let me send them all of these pictures of book covers that i like and I think that has really helped people who wouldn't pick up a book that had a bust on it and looked like it was a dry academic mm. book, pick it up and look at the back and flick to the first couple of pages and kind of be more interested in it. Um, and they also only made me take out the libelous jokes. <laughs> so they let me keep all the stuff about David yes, Cameron. Yes, yes. I, I do edit that part out for my students. <laughs> yes. Um, and they... Yeah, they let me keep the um see if i honestly it never occurred to me that people might use it in schools <laughs> probably uh, reflects poorly on me uh, as a teacher otherwise <laughs> i probably would have made it more popular. i want my students to hear about david um, cameron and ne- <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and they let me keep that stuff and they let me keep uh you know a lot of really dumb jokes about house and arrested development <laughs> that um i'm now with a more traditional publisher um and they are less keen on those things. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose that our final thoughts, I'd be just curious to hear what you think. I mean, what do, what do you think the implications are for academic and popular history? Because we there is such a divide often between those two, you know, streams of history. Almost like they inhabit separate worlds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you th- do you think that things yeah. like crowdfunding or like these sorts of publishers might change things? Or I think they can because I think they give things like what I do a chance like I don't know if I would have had a chance to leave have the book as it is with a traditional Mm. publisher because popular history is all about the story and which is why you will get a book literally every year which just retells Suetonius like the 12 Caesars and just written out the Suetonius again because they Suetonius tells a good story about each of the emperors and the there's no real or there is limited critical analysis of the sources or the context of Suetonius or what is the per, like the talking about the genre of biography or engagement with academic research on Suetonius as a writer or anything like that. There is just the story and academic publishing is obsessed with nuance and specificity and using the precise word and putting massive chunks of latin in because they don't want to dilute the translation or and you know which is grand and i love that stuff um but then they the story will usually get lost because they're not interested in the story they assume that their reader knows the story and what i want is a middle ground between those things which tells a good story but tells a good story and can use 
specific terms and can tell a good story about how these sources were created mm. and what we what the context of what Tacitus is writing is and um, that can have critical engagement with the history and academic engagement with the history but still can tell a good story that is entertaining to read and that's a kind of a, a hard sell that that is possible but things like unbound because they are willing to take a chance because they lose nothing if it fails yeah. basically uh allows stuff where you're trying something new and trying something which might or might not work which people it could have ended up that i went completely wrong and it turned out to be not fun enough for readers of who aren't historians and not academic enough for people who are historians um i think i balanced it just about okay but it gave me a chance to try something different and it seems to have worked out. And I, I like, I will always be very grateful to Unbound and I hope that they continue for many years. Mm, well, I like the fact that you could, as you say, in your introduction, it was, it was when I got the book, I sort of sat down to read it about a year ago. And when I read the introduction, um, as, you know, for, as you say, after the first few pages, I was like, this is like, unlike any other history book I've ever read. Um, <laughs> and, and the fact that at the end of your introduction, you, you talk about the fact that there this is as much your story as Agrippina's because there's so many gaps and yeah. so many problems with the evidence. Um, being able to just be that upfront and that honest and, and that clear with readers, not making them guess, you know, what's your approach? and <laughs> Where um, are the sources hiding? Yeah, exactly. And this is always a problem I have with popular history and why people always ask me if I've read X and Y because I'm a book, I work in a bookshop, that's my day job these days. And I'm like, no, because so many of them are not upfront like that. And they will tell, have a biography and they will use very like dynamic words like is and was, and this happened and X is Y. And you're like, mm, yeah. <laughs> where did you get that from? How do you know this? Who wrote that? Was a 200 years afterwards? And yeah, and so I'm as, cause I've been a historian for so long and I'm also a cynic I'm really mistrustful of things which don't aren't up front so I thought I'm going to be as I think we've seen that very much with Agrippina I mean talking about the big turning points of her life I mean so many of them you could interpret it exactly the opposite way that she that she didn't kill Claudius (laughs) that she didn't you know have incest with Nero that that she didn't conspire against Caligula there's you know there there are possibilities um, even at these incredibly uh, important moments in her life to see it differently yeah. Um, so we want to thank you um, uh, for sitting down and chatting with us and thank you for so much for writing this book. So for readers who are unfamiliar, obviously it will be in our show notes as well, but it's called Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, a biography of the most extraordinary woman in the Roman world um, <laughs> by none other than Dr. Emma Southern. And Emma is also one of the hosts of a fabulous podcast called History is Sexy. Emma, do you want to tell them a little bit about where they can find History is Sexy? So you can find History is Sexy on um, Twitter, which is Sexy History Pod. um, Or you can find us on Facebook, which is um, Sexy without the E. So just SXY, because Facebook doesn't let you put the word sexy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's Sexy History Pod. and what we do is people send it's me and my friend uh, Janina who is a writer uh, we people send us history questions and we do our best to answer them it's basically stuff that you can't be bothered to google yourself or which google is not answering properly for you then we will do the research and answer them fantastic. for you fantastic 
Well, thank you again so much. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you when your next book comes out. Yeah, which is not that long now. I'm editing it at the moment. It is called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And it is all about Roman murder. Love it. Excellent. Lots of different murders. (laughs) Well, we'll be on the lookout for it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And thank you so much for having me. Hello, this is Dr. G. Thank you so much for joining us for this special episode of The Partial Historians. We'd like to send our thanks to our patrons, Adri, Alejandro, Dana, Gunnar, Joel, Justine, Mark, Paul, Roman, Savannah, Sharon, Sean, Tamara, Theodore, and Zara. Thank you so much for your support and helping us to put together the best podcast that we can. Yours in history, Dr. G, on behalf of Dr. Rad and the Partial Historians.